Good morning. It is good to see you all this morning. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. It's where we're going to be focusing as we wrap up this last uh, section here in, in Matthew, chapter 5. We're, we're closing out this chapter, um, and, and it's getting closer to the halfway point of Jesus' sermon uh, on the mount. Uh, there was so much that he had to, to lay out before them and unpack. And, and over the past several weeks, we have been consider, considering various contrasts that Jesus has been dealing with. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you, back and forth. This brings us to our final one uh, this, this morning. And the final contrast is, is about love and hate. And the difference between those two things and what is expected to us. Now, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to know that, that love is one of the most prominent aspects of the life of Jesus. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, John tells us that, that, Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. He says, Therefore, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. And in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40, Jesus makes this statement. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, all right, that we should love God with every aspect of who we are. But he goes on, he says, but that's not the end of it. He says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. If you're a historian, and I know some of you are, maybe you, you like to focus in on the Civil War time frame and, 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 our, and our history in the nation. And if you are that type of person, you might remember that during the Civil War, there was a prison that was called Andersonville, and it was in Georgia. This prison was known for its extreme cruelty during the war. Now, just outside the, the perimeters of this, there was, in essence, a line of demarcation that if a prisoner got beyond that, they were shot. No questions asked. They just shot him. Plain and simple. All right? And anyone who crossed that line, that was their end. Now, the prisoners who were unfortunate enough to end up being kept at Andersonville, they were starved. Many were starved to death. Disease ran amok within this camp. And this was the first camp that the Confederates had put together down there in Georgia. It was a devastating place. I know that we can paint this horrific picture, but I don't want to give all the atrocities that were performed there but just know that it was not a good place to be. Now, we saw a version of this type of concentration camp in Germany under Adolf Hitler's reign. We consider how can people do these types of things to other people. The answer lies in a man's heart that's ruled by hatred. That's how it simply comes, that we, we can begin to dehumanize people simply by the fact that we hate them. And when we hate them enough that we dehumanize them, we will do anything to them just to destroy them, even though we know that they are made in the image of God. If we're to be like God and we're to be his followers of Christ, 
We are to be His image bearers in this world. We must love as God loved. That is the call that Jesus is putting for us today. Dr. Martin Luther King said it this way once. He says, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Amen. That's, that's true, isn't it? Just as it was in Jesus' day, many have this perception of love, but it's not the love as God commands. Much of what we see today in love is described as a love that really doesn't fit the biblical parameters or the biblical model of what love is. So in this final contrast between love and hate, Jesus reveals how we are supposed to love. And I want to examine some of the truths that our Lord describes. So let's consider loving the enemy. The first thing we notice in this text, that there is this cultural misinterpretation that has been taking place. A text had been printed within the Old Testament, and now as time has come along, the Jewish leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the rabbis, are teaching something that goes in total misunderstanding of what Jesus was saying. Let's look what he says in Matthew 5, 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, that's been the tradition, right? You love your enemy? No. You love your neighbor. You hate your enemy. And so they were being taught this over and over again. The tradition is, you have heard that it was said, Jesus, once again, he addresses what everybody's talking about, what they have been told by their leaders in, throughout history. And he's dealing with oral traditions that, may, that many times have, have, have had total disregard to what the Scripture says. It's good we're offering this class on Sunday mornings about misunderstanding the Scripture and how can you get to a biblical perspective that's accurate and true. The statement comes from an Old Testament passage in the law and if you read what it says, it does mention loving your neighbor, but it says nothing about hating your enemy. It's found in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, the part about hating your enemy that's something the rabbis came up with all on their own, all right? And, and, and it was developed over the years of their racial ideology that they as Jews were the superior people because they were God's people. Now, the Jewish leaders, they held to the strict adherence of the law. You have to obey it to the letter. That's what they wanted. But they had also developed a second code of ethics based on tradition that was followed as closely to the law and sometimes almost superseded the law that they might twist the law to their end. All right, well, much of that tradition was more than man's preference and it was opinion rather than being God's statements of truth for humanity. Jesus now was emphasizing that their tradition, what you have heard said, is wrong. And we need to be mindful, first off, that tradition can be good as well. 
It doesn't always have to be something that's bad. I'm not opposed to tradition. Matter of fact, there are a lot of traditions that are very good, that we can maintain those, and they're healthy, and, they're, and they have the ability to help us grow and mature in Christ. But here's a tradition that simply is not what God wants. We have never been called by God to hate our enemy. You're not going to find that in Scripture. But the scribes and the Pharisees concluded that if you weren't Jewish then you were to be hated and despised. But here's the truth. Jesus, as the way, the truth, and the life, wants us to understand this. So he's going to speak later on in the book of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 35 through 40, when he's going to say one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Here's the question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, well, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He says, This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is emphasizing one of the greatest truths in all Scripture. It's not a suggestion from him. These are commands as to how we are to live, all right? And he fully expects us to love our neighbor. Love for others shows a sympathetic concern and actual care for them, and God has always had a high standard for human relationships. As in all of his teachings, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking here about a personal standard of righteousness, He's not talking about civil law. So in the fullest sense, an Israelite's neighbor, Jesus is going to tell us, is anybody who has a need. And that need needs to be met by us. He's later going to tell a story about a good Samaritan you know, that was traveling down a road and gotten beaten up, and all the people that passed him by until finally one stops and cares him. In answering that question... Who is my neighbor? All right. But there's a tragedy in all of this. Let's look at Matthew 5.43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now this tragedy actually has two aspects to it. First of all, it speaks about a limited love. Right? Just your neighbor. You don't go beyond that. He limits the scope of how we are to love, how we should love one another. And the Pharisees, they were promoting this selfish love that, that was offered to only those whom they likened as their neighbor. All right? They taught that they were to love those who were close to them, but there was no encouragement to extend that love to anybody beyond their kinfolk. But we are to love all men. Now the second, and probably more tragic, is this. They were teaching a doctrine that is not based on fact. There's nothing in the scripture that teaches us that we are to hate our enemies. And yet that's what they're teaching. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Apparently the religious leaders down through the generations, they sought a means to justify their hatred for other people. 
Satan has a way of perverting the Word of God, trying to twist it to his own ends. Matter of fact, he even tried to use Scripture against Jesus when he was in the wilderness for those 40 days fasting and praying before he began his ministry. Satan knows the Word of God, and he wants to take it out of context and use it to his benefit. And people do the same thing. A little truth makes deception just a little bit more believable, doesn't it? We don't have to really go total contrast, but just change it up a little bit. And so that's what they're doing here. Well, you need to love your neighbor. That means hate your enemy. So the Pharisees and scribes, they had kept part of God's truth about love. In spite of such clear revelation, the rabbinic teaching began to teach this perversion of the Old Testament and omitted what was said. Love your neighbor how? As yourself. But it wasn't just omitting part of this. They were also adding to it. And so their tradition now has changed, not just loving your neighbor as yourself, but you need to now hate your enemy. And their addition was even more perverse than their omission. But it's, it's a logical extension of their all-consuming selfishness. All right? If it's all about me, and I have to worry about you. But Christians, what Jesus is telling us as he speaks his words in this passage of Scripture is leading us to have an understanding that Christians, those who follow Christ, must love even their enemy. It's, there's, there's no way around this, all right? People who we are naturally inclined to hate, people who mistreat us, people who abuse us, people who persecute us, Jesus says you still need to love them. And we still face this kind of tragedy today. I've heard people say, well, the Bible says... And they go on in some kind of fact that the Bible doesn't even really say. Now, I want to challenge you in this. Right? When somebody says to you, well, the Bible says such and such, check it out. Just because some preacher on the radio says something or some guy on, t- on a podcast or some guy on this platform says something, he doesn't mean it's going to be actually true. You need to verify it with the Word of God. And if it's not in harmony with what the Word of God says, then there is something amiss. All right? So Jesus wants us to do away with this misinterpretation. He wants to give us then a correct understanding, the correct interpretation. So let's look at verse 44. So he says here in verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, over in Luke chapter 6, which is kind of also the same type of dialogue on the Sermon on the Mount, but it's Luke's perspective, he writes us a little bit different take on this moment. Listen to what he has to say in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 and 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Once again, Jesus is correcting the error that has been handed down by all the rabbis through the years that you are to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And he speaks of love as God would have us love. And this love is an unconditional love. There's no conditions placed on it at all. 
I will love you if, I will love you when, I love you because. No conditions. You simply love. So he says, you are to love your enemies. Rather than hating them, we got to love them. And if we are to love as God loves, we must be willing to love unconditionally. It's not based upon who they are, where they are, what they do, or anything. We love because God loves. And nothing is going to bear witness of Christ better than us bearing this unconditional love for everybody, even those who despise us. Now, people can't refute love, especially when it's perceived as undeserved or unmerited. And that's how God loves us. We didn't need to be loved. Matter of fact, when we were at our worst, Romans tells us that Christ loved us. That God demonstrated his love for us. And Jesus died. It's this undeniable love that he wants us to understand. He says, you are supposed to do good to those who hate you. And this is love in action. We've already dealt with the tradition of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? And, and, and it's not supposed to be that we can get revenge on however we want to get revenge. It's, it's, that's a specific action that is done within the court system to make sure that things meet the right judgment for the crime. Jesus declares now that we are to do good to all people, even those who hate us. And the world doesn't know how to respond to that kind of kindness. The world only knows how to respond to hatred toward them. And our human nature wants to repay people back for that which they have done to, or people have done to them. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, Paul writes to the church there and he says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 20 and 21, to the contrary, Paul says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And, and Ganado or, or Arizona, years ago, there was a Presbyterian mission with the Indians, the Navajos. There was a mission hospital that was there, and a poor Navajo woman had been nursed back to health by a devoted Christian doctor. Here's kind of the story behind this. She had gotten to an age that her health had deteriorated quite a bit, and the people around her in the Navajo uh, reservation figured she was going to be dying pretty soon, so they just abandoned her out in the middle of nowhere and left her there. About three or four days later, she was found in this weakened condition, taken to the hospital, and there the doctor began to minister to her and to meet her, her physical needs. She spent about nine weeks in the hospital recovering from all this. As time had gone by, she began to become more alert. She wondered about this unexpected care that she was given by this physician. Why was he taking care of me? And so she made this statement to one of the nurses. She said, I can't understand it. Why did the doctor do all that for me 
He's a white man, and I'm an Indian. I never heard of anything like this before, she said. And her nurse, who was also a Navajo Indian, but was a Christian, she made this statement. She says, you know, it's the love of Christ that made him do that. And so she asked the nurse to explain, what does she mean by the love of Christ? And so they got the, one of the chaplains there to come in and begin to share the gospel message with her about Jesus. Then a day came when she was asked, can you put your trust in Jesus? Turn from the idols that you have worshipped and, and, and surrender your life over to him and, and trust him as a son of the living God? And she began to think about that. And the more she tossed that in her mind, then she came up with this question, and she, and she understood this. She says, I don't know about that. And about that time, the doctor walked into the room, and her face lit up. And she was just so happy to see him because he has taken good care of her and loved her. And she made this statement. If Jesus is anything like the doctor, then I'll trust him. I mean, this is what we are supposed to do. We are supposed to allow the love of God to manifest itself in us so that people will want God to be like us. But we've got to be like Him for them to see the desirable relationship. How much do we love even our enemy? You see, this type of love is an unhindered love as well. Jesus said that we're supposed to bless those who curse you. He knew the emotions that we all feel because he himself lived within the body of flesh and he experienced the same emotions we had. He knew that the flesh really has no desire to bless those who are abusive to him. But if we are to love as Christ loves, we need to be willing to love at all times and to bless those who come against us. The love of Christ will allow us to speak to those who have wronged us in a kind and loving manner. It is unhindered. But it's also an unlimited love. He says that we are supposed to pray for those who abuse you. I don't know about you, but I'll pray for that guy who did that to me. <laughs> right? I'll pray that God gets him. Right? And God takes revenge on what he's done to me. Right? No, no, no. That's not what Jesus is saying. Don't pray against him. Pray for him. I mean, that's most likely the, the most difficult means of love. Sometimes we can find courage to offer kindness to people, just a little kindness to someone who, who've, who've wronged us or offended us. But for me to stop and to put them in my daily prayers that God blesses them? John Chrysostom, 4th century preacher, he said that prayer is the very highest summit of self-control and that we have most brought into our lives into conformity to God's standards when we can pray for our persecutors. That's been a difficult thing for me. 
But yet, I understand I need to do that. John Stott said, If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayers for his enemies, what pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours? So take a moment and consider the prayer that Jesus prayed even as he hung on the cross. It wasn't a prayer for God's judgment on the people. It wasn't a prayer that God would strike them dead. But do you remember what he said? He said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And that's the ultimate example of love that is, that is unlimited and it's unhindered and it's undeniable and it's unconditional right there. So this brings me to my third point. The character that is modeled for us in Jesus is the character that we are supposed to emulate. He offers words of wisdom substantiating his love for us. And when we possess and reveal the love of Christ to the world around us, and we bear witness of him, that's what we do. Just as when we're partaking of communion, we are proclaiming his death until he comes, right? Our love and how we respond to people is the same thing, and that models to people. And this display of love by us it really has a twofold witness to it. The first is this. It expresses the relationship that we have with our Father. Right? There's, they recognize there's something different about us. And so we see in Matthew 5.45, he says, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We are never more like our Father in heaven when we show forth his great love to those who are against us unconditionally. Now, his love is a love without boundaries. His love is a love that has no demarcation line, that I'll love you up to that point, but if you go beyond it, you're toast. He loves us. We need to seek our love as God has loved. Our world is filled with sin and evil, and yet the sun rises each and every day, and the rain falls upon everybody, the wicked and the good. God has not determined that there are locations here in this world where the good people get to live and the bad people get to live. He wants all of us to live in a new location of heaven. And so he has sent his son to model for us how we should live and how we should love. And we need to seek to show our love as the Father has loved us so that others may see him in us. Now, understand, our love does not secure our salvation. That's the grace of God that does that. But it bears witness of our salvation. 
It testifies of our relationship with our Father in heaven and our conformity to his image as the Spirit of God works in us and makes us to be more and more like him. The more we become like Christ, the more we understand how to love others, even those who reject him and us. The second aspect of this witness is that we bear a reflection of the the Son of God. Verses 46 and 47. He said, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You see, the scribes and the Pharisees were certain of of one thing that they were better than anybody else. And they took pride in their righteousness, in, quote, in their righteousness and in their actions to appear better than others by their long and, and wordy prayers, by their offerings to the temple, by the charitable good works that they were doing. They were demonstrating that they were superior than others. But Jesus, again, cuts through their blind hypocrisy. And in verse 46, he shows that their type of loving is nothing greater than what you're going to see anyplace else within the world. Tax collectors and the Gentiles, to whom the scribes and Pharisees thought that they were superior to, were doing the exact same thing. Now, this had to be one of the deepest cuts that Jesus made to them. They would rather spit upon a tax collector because they were traitors. They were turning aside the kingdom of Israel for those Roman dogs. Right? And those Gentiles, God didn't even like them. Right? And yet Jesus says, even they know how to love one another. You've got to do more than that. You see, it's a rhetorical question that he's asking. He's not asking what is the reward, but but rather pointing out that loving those who love you anyway is really no reward. That you need to love those who don't love you. And so he says, even the tax tax gatherers and the Gentiles, they exhibit your same kind of righteousness. He said, yours is no better than theirs. Now, if we're to reflect the image of Jesus in our life and the change that he makes upon us and how we live in this world around us, we must be willing to love all men, regardless of race, nationality, creed, color. It it doesn't matter. Political party, period. It doesn't mean we need to love their ideals or their way of living, but we need to love them. You see, there is a commanded expectation when Jesus wraps all this up. If you are going to be a follower of Christ, listen to what he has to say in Matthew 5, 48. You, therefore, must, not try, right? You, therefore, must be perfect 
as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a command. That's not a suggestion. That's not a, an ideal or a, you know, whatever. It's a, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I want to tell you, I've blown it. I, I'm, I'm not perfect, even though my wife says I am. I'm not. Don't believe her. All right? I'm not perfect. But Jesus says, you be perfect. Well, I know I can't achieve that. But Jesus, he closes his thoughts regarding the many contrasts with this command. And, and let's take a moment to consider this command. Notice, there is an expectation in this. Therefore, you, you must be perfect. It speaks of spiritual maturity on our part. We've got to grow in Christ. We've got to develop virtue and purity and uprightness in character. I'm well aware that we will never achieve this perfection that God possesses while living in this body of flesh. But that doesn't mean I can discount his command to possess this godly character. Many of us use arguments about our inability to achieve perfection to justify other imperfections. So since I really can't be perfect, it's okay if I hate. That's just one aspect of my life. But we need to be continually striving to be more like our Lord each and every day. You cannot stay the same. Maturity in any fashion or form has an aspect of growth to it. Now, a little over four months ago, my daughter had a baby. I call him Rags. She calls him Alexander. All right? But I think he's more than doubled in size. He's getting big. I mean, I'm ready for him to start walking. At, at six months. Well, yeah, that's right. No, but we have anticipations of growth. And if, and if that baby is not growing, if he stays at the same weight and the same size as he was the day he was born, there is a problem. You cannot, as a Christian, stay the exact same way you were when you were born again in Christ. You must grow. You must mature in your spiritual life, in your godly character. You must move towards the perfection that he is introducing to us. But not only is there expectation, there is an example he lays out here. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right? I mean, our, our God is perfect and holy in every way imaginable. He's never sinned. He never will. He is the utmost example of holy perfection that you're ever going to find. He is to be the example of those of us who would seek to follow after him. And he demonstrated that for us in his son Jesus when he gave up his position and his equality with God and he humbled himself and became a man. And in turn, we are to be an example for others to follow as we follow Christ. Listen to what Paul says to the church in Philippians. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 through 
first verse of chapter 4. He says, brothers, join me in imitating Join, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the examples you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But... I knew a here was come. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. What? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's what Paul is saying. This kind of brings us to the conclusion of all this. This, this beginning portion of his sermon on the mount, and it's such a powerful way, he's leaving us with a very tremendous challenge before we dig into what lies ahead. Many people were following traditions and the opinions of man and forsaking the righteous standards that God had already put upon them within the Old Testament. God gave truth to us, and truth never changes. He has set a standard as to how you and I are supposed to live, and he has not changed that standard. I pray that all we do will be in accordance with what his revealed will is. That we love not only our neighbors, but we love our enemies. Jesus dealt with much in this passage that we've just considered. I mean, it's, it's, his whole central theme here is that of what love is. And he displayed that in his own life, especially when he went to the cross. You see, we are never going to be what God desires us to be without loving as he wants us to love. And I know it's hard when people have hurt you. And I understand it's very difficult when people have just downright made your life miserable. But we've got to love. I mean, how would, you, how would you rate your love of others on a scale? I mean, are you, are you loving your family a whole lot? And some of us have difficulty with that even. Are you loving your neighbor? Well, you don't have my neighbor, John. <laughs> but we look at ourselves... And we don't necessarily need to compare ourselves to Christ because there's no way we can be like Him. But here's the thing. We follow Him. And we walk in His steps. And the more we traverse life the way He lived, His Spirit moves in us and overcomes all the awful things of our life and he, he molds us and shapes us to be more like Jesus. Now you're here this morning and you've never accepted 
the love of Christ. You really don't know what love is about. Until you know truly how much he loved you, you're never going to understand how to love others. I don't think we can truly love apart from a real relationship with Jesus Christ. And this is what he calls us to. To love one another. Let's go ahead and pray.